0: Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity and grateful to the Alumni Council for, uh, for the chance to meet with you uh, this morning and take a little of your time to reflect uh, on two topics that I'd like to bring together, because both are very interesting uh, to me. Uh, the first is the issue of immigration, which is an almost perennial issue in American politics, and it's certainly an issue uh, today, although I don't intend in my formal remarks to say much about the policy questions facing the country on the, uh, on the uh, immigration issue just at the moment. And then the other issue is the issue of American exceptionalism. That, too, is a perennial issue in American politics, and it has flared up uh, again. Uh, What does it mean to claim that America is exceptional, that we're an exceptional nation? Are we, in some sense, uh, exceptional, different? Uh, In Lincoln's perhaps somewhat extreme formulation, are we an almost chosen people? Well, President Obama weighed into the debate fairly early uh, in his presidency with a somewhat ambiguous comment about American exceptionalism, saying that, yes, uh, he agreed with the concept of American exceptionalism, just as, he said, the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism and the Brits uh, believe in British exceptionalism. But others have embraced American exceptionalism in a more robust sense, and still others have criticized the concept of American exceptionalism as perhaps veering over in the direction of a kind of chauvinism. Uh, Michael Kinsley, who's a very famous liberal uh, commentator who many of us used to watch, perhaps you can remember, on Bill Buckley's television show, Firing Line, uh, often as Buckley's sparring partner and uh, sometimes toward the end as Buckley's substitute uh, in the chair. But Michael Kinsley has written a very powerful uh, article arguing that America is really not exceptional at all, that America is just like any other place, uh, with its virtues, but also with its faults. Well, let me begin by just stating my own position baldly. It seems to me that the United States of America uh, is an exceptional nation. And that seems to me, in fact, to be a proposition whose truth is too obvious even to debate. Our nation was, as our greatest president said, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And not only was our nation, as Lincoln said, so conceived and so dedicated, we as a nation have proven to the world that a nation so conceived and so dedicated can indeed long endure, not without a lot of trouble and heartache, and in the case of the Civil War bloodshed, not without struggles against our own injustices and evils, but we have indeed long endured. What our founding fathers called this great experiment in ordered liberty, this great experiment in Republican government, something that they had no guarantee of the success of, has indeed lasted for more than 200 years. The history of our nation, as I see it, is a history, uh, a story, really, of we the people, as the Constitution (coughs) Begins in its opening words We, the people, the American people, struggling, sometimes struggling against each other, to protect and to honor and to live up to the exceptional principles around which we have integrated ourselves and constituted ourselves as a people. And for me, this is the key to American exceptionalism. What's exceptional about the United States of America, in my opinion? are the principles around which we have constituted ourselves as a people, the principles that we have struggled, not without failures, but also not without successes, to live up to and embody in our institutions uh, and in our political life. Our record is, as I have said, far from unblemished, but, as I have also said, we are not without success. Now, no one needs me to remind him that part of what is unique about the United States is that our common bonds, the things that unite us, are not to be found in blood, ethnic solidarity or something like that, or even in soil, but rather they're to be found in a shared political moral creed, a set of moral principles that are at the foundation of our polity, of our political life announced in our Declaration of Independence and developed in our Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was the Declaration within the Declaration that made the Declaration the Declaration that it was and is. And it's that Declaration within the Declaration that all the great Reformers, have appealed to in calling the United States of America back to its best self. It was that declaration within the Declaration that Lincoln constantly repaired to in arguing both for the Union and its preservation and against the evil of slavery. It was that declaration within the Declaration that Martin Luther King Jr. never failed to invoke in making the case against segregation and racial injustice. Now, it seems to me that this fact that we are integrated as a people and constituted as a polity around not blood or soil, but a moral political (coughs) creed is clearest in the fact that people really can, in the richest and fullest sense, become Americans. You don't have to be born into it. You can become Americans. And that is the link with immigration in this uh, duality here that I'm talking about this morning of immigration and exceptionalism. Millions upon millions of people have become Americans. People who didn't begin as Americans, who became Americans. And became Americans not in any merely formal sense, but in quite a rich and robust sense. Now, of course, one certainly can become a citizen of Greece or France or China. But can one really become in the fullest and most robust sense, a Greek or a Frenchman or Chinese? You can get citizenship, yes. You can get a passport. You can get privileges. But will you understand yourself to be, and will your fellow citizens understand you to be, in the fullest and robust, most robust sense, a Frenchman or Chinese? in the way that Americans can become, in the fullest and most robust sense, Americans. Understanding themselves, no matter where they came from, no matter what their language, no matter what their ethnicity, and be understood by their fellow citizens as not merely holders of a passport or the rights of citizenship, but Americans. An immigrant who becomes a citizen of the United States becomes, or at least can become, Not merely an American citizen, but an American. He is as American as the fellow whose ancestors arrived on the Mayflower. Now, how do immigrants, no matter where they come from, no matter what their language, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their religion, whether they came from Italy or Indonesia, whether they came from Catholic South America or Islamic Northern Africa, how do they become Americans? In practice, it goes beyond becoming an American citizen and even formally signing on to the American moral political creed. We hold these truths to be self evident. The additional key ingredient, I believe, is something I know intimately from my own family's experience. And I wonder if this resonates with yours. I suspect that it might, at least in many cases. And that ingredient is gratitude. It's typically, it certainly was in my family, an immigrant's feelings of gratitude to America for the liberty and security and opportunity our nation affords him and his family that leads to his appreciation of the ideals and institutions of American cultural, economic, and civic life. From this appreciation comes a belief in the goodness of American ideals, as articulated above all in the Declaration of Independence and as developed in the Constitution, and a belief in the value of those constitutional structures and institutions by which our fundamental ideals are effectuated. Those protections of basic rights of participation and speech and assembly and religion and so forth. And from this belief, just to carry the chain out to the end, arises the aspiration to become an American citizen together with the willingness to shoulder the responsibilities of citizenship and even to make great sacrifices for the nation should it come to that. I'm always impressed by the willingness of so many, many of our immigrants, even though recently arrived or recently attaining citizenship, to shoulder the burdens and make sacrifices, send, in some cases, their own children off to fight the nation's wars. My own immigrant grandfathers came to the United States a bit over a hundred years ago. Like most immigrants, then and now, they were not drawn here by an abstract belief in the superiority of the American political system. Neither of my grandfathers was a political theorist. My father's father came from Syria, then under Ottoman rule, Fleeing oppression visited upon him and his family members as a member of a relatively small ethnic and religious minority uh, in that troubled country. Troubled then, and, and alas, troubled now, as you all know. My mother's father came to escape the poverty of southern Italy, Calabria. Now, both of my grandfathers worked in the railroads and in the mines, My maternal grandfather settled in West Virginia, where there was a small immigrant community in Clarksburg, Fairmont, and Morgantown, which are a trio of cities along the Monongahela River, a little south of the Pennsylvania border. The coal would be mined, well, very near where uh, I grew up. There were mines all over where I grew up. We'd we'd hear the the alarm when the ships changed and, and so forth. But they'd mine the coal, they'd put the coal on the barges, on the Monongahela, these river towns, ship it up to Pittsburgh to make the steel. Then the steel would get shipped up to Detroit to to make the cars. You remember the old system. So my grandfather began in the mines when he came over from Italy. But he was able to save up enough money to start a little grocery store. It's what a lot of Italians, at least in my grandfather's day where I grew up, did. And his little grocery store soon became rather a flourishing business. My father's father, my paternal grandfather, spent his entire life as a laborer. He died of emphysema, no doubt as a result of the pulmonary hazards of coal mining in those days. It's still a dangerous business, but it was a lot more dangerous in every way back then. I knew both of my grandfathers, knew them well. And both men were exceedingly grateful for what America made possible for them and their families. Their gratitude was not diminished when times got hard, as they did for all Americans in the Great Depression. Although both of my grandfathers encountered ethnic prejudice and discrimination, they viewed this as an aberration, a failure of some Americans to live up to the nation's ideals. It did not dawn on them to blame the bad behavior of some Americans on America itself or to condemn America's principles. On the contrary, America, in the eyes of these two men and their wives, was a land of unsurpassed blessing. It was a nation of which they were proud and happy to become citizens. And they both did manage to become citizens. And even before they became citizens, they had become patriots, men who deeply appreciated what America is and what she stands for. Like so many other immigrants, my immigrant grandparents particularly appreciated the opportunities that America made available to their children. My father's mother had a sister, G2, an immigrant from Syria who had a son named John Solomon who wanted to be a lawyer. So this would have been my father's first cousin, my first cousin at one remove. John finished college and then completed law school at West Virginia University. The law school in those days was located on University Avenue, if any of you know Morgantown, near the center of the campus. It was a grand building. It's still there. It's no longer used as a law school. But it's a grand building, sort of signalling the majesty of the law. And one enters it by walking up a broad set of stairs. Well, when my cousin John's mother we knew her as Calte Jamile came to attend her son's graduation ceremony at the law school, she stopped to kiss each step as she ascended those grand stairs. Such was her gratitude. Now, of course, her. Son, my cousin John, was thoroughly embarrassed by this display. (laughs) This was before my time, but my father who was there tells me that his cousin John turned to his mother at about the fourth step and pleaded, please, mom, you're acting like an immigrant. (laughs) Indeed she was. I talked a moment ago about how gratitude for liberty, security, and opportunity leads immigrants to an appreciation of American ideals and institutions, and in turn's give, turn gives rise to an aspiration to American citizenship and a willingness to bear the responsibilities and burdens and even make great sacrifices. Four of my paternal grandparents' five sons were drafted into the United States Army to serve in the Second World War. My own father uh, served. I, I, I uh, recently had the magnificent experience of, um, being at the French Embassy in Washington, uh, where my father was inducted as a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor of France for his uh, service in uh, in liberating France uh, in Normandy and Brittany. My maternal grandparents had only one son, had a gang of daughters, but only one son, the Italians, and he too was drafted. All of these men served in combat and returned with decorations. Their immigrant parents were immensely proud of them. Proud of them precisely because they fought for America and for what America stands for. They considered, though neither of my grandfathers could speak much English, still trying to figure out how they got through the citizenship test, although they did, neither could speak much English. My grandmothers were a little better at it. Though they too were immigrants, but they were so proud of their boys. And they considered that their sons were not fighting for a country in which they were visitors or guests or aliens. No, they considered that their sons were fighting for their country. They were fighting for a country that was not only great but good, a country whose ideals, however, Short of them, we sometimes fell and fall, were noble. A country to whom they were immensely grateful, and not merely because it provided a haven from poverty and oppression, though it did that, but rather a country whose principles they had come just deeply to believe in. They were not raised with these principles, as you can imagine. Where they grew up, these were not the principles that everybody shared, but they had come to share them. When their boys were fighting, they knew that it was entirely possible, all too possible, that ultimately they would be called upon to give what Lincoln at Gettysburg described as the last full measure of devotion. In, in the case of uh, my uncles, uh, in the end, that was not required. They all came home, but I'm sure there are people in this audience whose uh, uncles or fathers or great-uncles or grandfathers did not come home. Many gave the last full measure of devotion, and many of those who did were the sons of immigrants. Now, you can imagine, of course, the anxiety that, uh, that the prospect, the, 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 the all-too-real possibility of losing a boy in the Pacific theater, the brutal combat of the Pacific, you can imagine the anxiety that that caused for an Italian family who had one and only one son, and he was there fighting in the Pacific that however much sleep was lost as a result of fear and even dread, they remained proud that their son was fighting for his country, for their country, for America. Nor did the fact that Italy, under fascist rule, was on the other side of that conflict, give my grandfather or my grandmother, much less their children, so much as a moment's pause They knew which side they were on, because they were Americans. The gratitude leading to appreciation, leading to conviction, and the commitment at the heart of true American patriotism left them in no doubt as to their loyalty. They were patriots. What I learned at my grandfather's knee, both my grandfather's knees, was patriotism. I have the sense that my uncle's service to the nation at a time of peril was not only an expression of their Americanism and the Americanism of their, immigrant grandpa- of their immigrant parents. It was a profound confirmation and ratification of that Americanism. If they had any doubts in their own minds about whether they really were truly and fully Americans, as American as their fellow citizens, whose families had been here a while, who were 3rd or 4th or 5th or 7th or 10th generation. Military service erased those doubts. All those boys in combat facing a mortal enemy, Hitler over here, Japan over here, were made, it was very clear to them, they were all equally, whatever else they were, different social classes, different ethnic groups, they were equally American under arms, under the flag, under threat, they were equally Americans. Now, I dare say that the same was true, and always has been true, just in case any native-born citizens had any doubt about whether their immigrant neighbors really were Americans. The willingness of immigrants and their children to take the risks, and in many, many cases to be counted among the fallen, leaves the question of allegiance and American identity in no doubt. Now, of course, some Protestant Americans wondered whether non Protestants, especially Catholics, could truly become Americans. I'm sure many of you are old enough to remember when that was an issue. Uh, The Kennedy election in 60 sort of presented that issue. Could he really be an American? He's an American citizen, he came from an American family. Family had been here for a couple of generations, but as a Catholic, could he really be an American? Wasn't that much earlier, when was it? 1928, when uh, Alfred Smith became the first nominee of a major party who was a a Catholic, Democratic nominee. Uh, Lost, I guess, must have been to Herbert Hoover if I'm putting the history together. And uh, you know the story, right, of the uh, of the of the telegram that uh, Alfred Smith famously sent to the Pope the uh, day after the election, after he lost the election. It's famous because it was just the one sentence telegraph to the Pope saying, "Unpack." <laughs> But that changed. But there was a time when Protestant Americans really wondered whether non Protestants, and especially Catholics, could truly become Americans. Great waves of Catholic immigrants were coming from Italy and from Eastern Europe and from Ireland and so forth through the 19th century into the 20th century. And Protestant Americans in some cases were concerned that hierarchical and non-democratic forms of church governance would hinder the ability of non-Protestants, and especially Catholics, to appreciate and fully give their allegiance to democratic institutions and principles of civic life. Some even believed that Catholic immigrants would have to be decatholicized by the public school system and other mechanisms in order to become patriotic Americans. Well, of course, the natural and understandable Catholic reaction to that the establishment of Catholic parochial schools around the country, only heightened Protestant worries. But part of what eventually made these worries go away was the record of service and heroism of Catholic and other non-Protestant soldiers, Jews, Eastern Orthodox, people from other traditions, fighting for democracy and against authoritarian regimes and totalitarian ideologies in the First and especially the Second World War. Catholics saw no contradiction between their faith and their allegiance to the United States of America. On the contrary, religious commitment tended to support patriotic conviction. Faithful Catholics wanted to be, and not merely to be seen to be, though that too, the very best of good American citizens. And as they saw it and see it, that doesn't require the slightest allusion of their Catholic faith. Now, I've been talking about how gratitude launches immigrants on the path to becoming Americans. It's happened to millions. There are countless permutations of the story, but they are permutations of the same story. I suspect that as you hear me tell stories of my grandparents, many of you are thinking of stories not at all dissimilar of your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents and how they became Americans. The amazing and wonderful thing is that a family story like mine, of immigrant ancestors becoming Americans, sharing in the blessings of American life, and taking upon themselves their share of the nation's burdens, is not the exception. It's the norm. Of course, the story of Africans brought to America as slaves in chains and then subjected to segregation and discrimination even after slavery was abolished is a radically different one, a story of injustice and a stain upon our nation's history. Yet the great efforts to right these wrongs by blacks and whites alike and live up to our national ideals of liberty and justice, ideals to which Martin Luther King called us and earned the right to the holiday that we have just honored him with, are also part of our American heritage, part of the story. I believe that immigration has been a great strength for America and that it will continue to be so. I certainly hope that immigrants to our land will continue to want to be Americans. Now, does this mean that I reject what has come to be known as multiculturalism? Well, it depends on what one means by that term. I certainly see no need to encourage immigrants to abandon their customs, traditions, and ethnic or religious identities. On the contrary, I think it's good for families and good for America for immigrants to honor their ethnic com- customs and identities and pass them along to the next generation. I do think that it's very important for immigrant children to learn English. But I rejoice that many of those children become not only good English speakers, but also are given the gift of their native language, the language of their homeland. So when I see students uh, uh, at Princeton High School, where, uh, where my daughter uh, attended, or over at Princeton Day School, where my son attended, who work hard in school all week in the usual subjects, but then on Saturday go to Korean school or Chinese school so that they will retain the language that was the first language of their mothers and fathers. or Whether they're learning uh, one of the East European languages because their parents come from former Soviet bloc uh, countries. I think that's good. I have no problem with that, quite the opposite. Immigrants have always done this, and it's fine and good, a source of strength. Now, of course, this is to be distinguished from something else that goes sometimes under the label of ideology that promotes the rejection of a primary and central political allegiance to the United States and its ideals and institutions. And it's certainly to be distinguished from any ideology that denies the fundamental goodness of America's principles of political and civil liberty. Now it seems to me that where a culture of opportunity flourishes, immigrants will feel, as my grandparents felt, gratitude for the opportunities they are afforded to lift themselves up and make a better life for their children by dint of hard work and determination to succeed. However, it appears to be a brute fact of human psychology that where a culture of entitlement prevails, gratitude, even for charitable assistance, will not emerge. In part, of course, this is to be explained by the fact that upward social mobility is dampened in circumstances of a culture of entitlement. Sometimes we see the phenomenon known as welfare dependency. I observed its soul-destroying effects on many non-immigrant families in West Virginia as I was growing up. You see, dependency is an an equal opportunity soul-destroyer. And this in turn leads, in many cases, to a kind of resentment as people persuade themselves that the reason that they are not getting ahead is that those who are already better off are cheating or manipulating the system to hold down people at the bottom of the ladder who are dependent on entitlement. You see this in the former uh, Soviet Union uh, today. So the culture of entitlement ends up reinforcing the attitude that impedes the gratitude that enables immigrants to become, in that full and robust sense, Americans. As I said, I want immigrants to become Americans. I want them to believe in American ideals and institutions. I want them to join all of their fellow Americans in holding these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these, indeed, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want them to believe as I believe in the dignity of the human being, in limited government, Republican democracy, quality of opportunity, morally ordered liberty, private property, economic freedom, and the rule of law, principles that I think have played the leading role in the great success of this experiment in ordered liberty. Our success as a political entity, showing the world that Republican (coughs) democracy can succeed, although it had failed, throughout the ancient times, it failed in the medieval and renaissance city-states. It has succeeded because of these principles. And of course, these principles that have made us the most astonishingly prosperous nation in the history of the world. And I want them to believe in these ideals and principles not because they are ours, but because they are noble and good and true. They honor the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of all members of the human family. They call forth from us the best that we are capable of. They ennoble us. Our efforts to live up to them, despite our failures and imperfections, have made us, in my opinion, a great people, a force for freedom and justice in the world, and, of course, an astonishingly prosperous nation, as I, as I said. It's little wonder that America is, as it always has been, a magnet for people from every land who seek a better life. There's not a lot of fleeing from America, of fleeing from a lot of other places, but there tends to be fleeing in the other direction, toward America. But the transmission of American ideals to immigrants and, indeed, to anyone including new generations of native-born Americans, depends on the maintenance of a culture in which these ideals flourish. The maintenance of such a culture is a complicated business, one with many dimensions. But in this nation of immigrants, this democratic nation of immigrants, in which we, the people, have the privilege and responsibility of governing ourselves, This business of maintaining a culture of freedom is every citizen's business. And it's certainly the special business of institutions of higher learning, especially those who pledge themselves to being, as yours has pledged itself to being, in the nation's service. For such institutions, Civic education, education that advances the understanding of our nation's constitutional principles and institutions, is a high calling and a solemn obligation. If, as your fellow alumnus James Madison said, only a well-educated people can be permanently a free people, then what his alma mater and yours seeks to do in its programs in civic education is vital to the success of this grand experiment in ordered liberty that Madison and the other founding fathers bequeathed to us and to our posterity. Thank you.